Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike, the sound guy, who is smoldering as we speak with rage. His face is bright red uh, because I was late coming into the studio today. What color would you call that? Is that, is that garnet? I didn't realize your face could turn that color. Uh, no. So he's telling me that he's not mad that I'm late. He's mad why I was late. And I'll tell him. All right. Okay. I will tell them. I was arguing on Twitter. All right. I will disclose that up front. I was late because I was arguing on Twitter. Uh, some guy who don't know, hadn't heard of, uh, had a blue check mark though, and apparently is a famed writer for the Federalist and a few other, wrote some books, uh, basically said that people are not incarcerated for their race in this country. Uh, I thought that was fantastically idiotic, so I tweeted at him, and that led to a whole thing. So basically, I just went through the show notes and did a thread on all of the fucked up stories we've covered since May, just a snippet of them. I mean, it was only like 12. It wasn't a long rant. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we were we were supposed to be in the studio uh, somewhere in the range of 4 to 4.15. I didn't get here until about 4.18-ish. So uh, I apologize for my tardiness today. Uh, we do have a lot to talk about, though. But before we get into all of that other stuff, uh, I got to go through the obligatory announcements. So first, make sure you join the conversation online. If you haven't yet, we are on Twitter, at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Our website, if you want to leave a comment, is Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And we also have a Patreon community, patreon.com slash Fisk, that is slash F-S-C-K, where you can get a couple bonus podcasts with some extra Law 140 stuff. Um, speaking of Law 140, we will have a special Law 140 today. It's an extended one. It's about 30 minutes. Uh, we talk with Peter Romery of Q Verity Legal, and he will walk us through how to detect deception, how to spy the lie, if you will. So make sure you stick around for that. Um, we do have a few off-podcast things I want to give you guys a heads up about. Uh, we're nearing December. And every year for three years now, I have done what is called a food raiser, where we've basically got canned goods and other stuff for an elementary school up the street from my office. Uh, it's Eastway Elementary. They're a predominantly poor uh, school with a lot of poor kids. We've got at least two homeless shelters that basically feed into Eastway. Um, so starting December 1st and running through December 18th, we will have our third annual uh, Eastway Food Raiser. And if you're local to my office, would love for you to drop off some non-perishable goods of assorted kind, something you think a kid would eat for the Christmas holiday. Um, and if you're not local and you want to participate, in years past, I've had folks give donations to my campaign account when I ran for the state Senate, and we used that to pay for it. Um, since I'm not running for office this time, we can't do that as an option. So what I would suggest uh, is to get a gift card for Sam's Club because that's where we get the best pricing for stuff uh, and send that to us. And what we'll do is we'll use all the gift cards together and the teacher that I collaborate with, she places the order, I go and pay for it, and on we go. Um, also, on December 8th, which falls in the, the middle of this process, uh, we're going to have a special fundraiser for the Durham Animal Protection Society. Uh, so those of you that have been following me on Twitter for a while, once every three or four months, I pick a charity and try to raise money for them online. And given that Samson passed away last month and um, I got him from the Animal Protection Society, I feel like I kind of owe something to them. 
uh, for taking care of him and having him there for me to adopt way back in 2011. Uh, so we will have a day-long Twitter fundraiser for them. It's going to be on December 8th. I'm going to re-announce those in next week's podcast, but I wanted to give you guys a heads up now so you know that it's coming. Uh, also wanted to thank people for the continued feedback on the pronunciations. I have been corrected again on the town in Massachusetts. Uh, it is called Worcester, not Wooster, not Worcester. I'm frankly, I'm just going to start calling it Worcester just to be done with it, but I've been told that it is now Wooster. I uh, also had people get really upset that I said meta-analysis. I was told by no less than four different people that it is, in fact, meta-analysis. And I will fight you on that because we actually refer to META a lot in the computer science profession where I got my degree. And it's pronounced either way. It tends to apply to data and which pronunciation you use depended on how you pronounced data. It was either meta-data or metadata, either one, both describing the same thing. So I don't give a damn what Oxford English Dictionary says or what Webster says or what anyone else says. I'm going to call it meta because it just sounds better to me for a meta analysis than for a meta analysis. Uh, but if you hear me pronounce something wrong, please feel free to correct me on Twitter as you see fit. Um, so not going to talk a whole lot about political news. What I want to talk about on the politics front is not Trump related, but it's about technology related. So the FCC has moved to roll back uh, so-called net neutrality regulations. And a lot of people that I see commenting online don't know what this actually means and don't realize that there are no good sides in this particular debate. Everyone is acting in their own self-interests and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Uh, so if you're not a tech person, essentially when you're dealing with data, you have assorted types of stuff that goes over the internet. So obviously you have uh, this podcast would be audio. You've got YouTube, you got video. Uh, if you're just looking at a website that is plain text, HTML, uh, CSS, PHP, that type of stuff. So you have those different types of data. And to get those, you've got a lot of different factors that go into how quickly you get that information. So part of it is the speed of the server that is serving that information. Part of it is the geographic proximity from the server to you. So for example, you have what are called CDNs or content distribution networks where they're mirrors of the same data located in different hubs around the country with the idea being that if they're geographically closer to you, you'll get that stuff a little bit faster. Uh, and then you've got the actual transmission itself. So if you're on a fiber line or if you're on a copper wire, um, all that stuff kind of factors in. Most residential stuff uh, goes through copper. So there's actually a fixed amount of bandwidth that you can get through any particular residential facility. Uh, if you happen to live on campus at a university, you may be blessed with fiber. Uh, if you're one of the few neighborhoods that has like Google fiber, that stuff is fiber as well. So you got keep all that in mind. You have all of these variables talking about transmission. You have these different data types. And then even within different types of data, you have different uses for it. So, I mean, for video, you could be watching cat videos on YouTube, uh, or you could also be a doctor doing remote medicine to a rural area where you Skype in and you're talking with a nurse who's on site. Um, useful for rural areas that don't have hospitals because there's just not enough population there to support them. So you have telemedicine, it's called. Um, so essentially, net neutrality is this rule the FCC adopted a few years back. I want to say like seven years ago, but don't quote me on that, 
but essentially says that internet service providers cannot prioritize that traffic at all. Anything that goes over the lines of the internet, that wiring going into your house, it's all treated the exact same as far as speed. Um, so people talk about this being this tremendous thing, that all traffic is equal, it's very egalitarian, uh, but the reality is net neutrality is not neutral. Because if you're treating all of the data the same, what happens is certain uses of data, uh, so for example, this podcast or the cat videos on YouTube, they're very high bandwidth. They require a lot of data packets to get information compared to checking Wikipedia, which is mostly just text. And if you're treating all of the data identically, it doesn't make a lick of difference whether it's a YouTube packet or a Wikipedia packet. What happens is I have an incentive to use as much bandwidth as possible. You have that exact same incentive. We all want to go watch our cat videos on YouTube instead of trying to be courteous and sticking to Wikipedia. And that creates a bottleneck. And that's particularly true for residential areas, apartment complexes, where you'll have multiple people on the same pipe. We call it a pipe. Essentially the same batch of wires, the same uh, set of wiring um, so when you have a bunch of people using high bandwidth applications, things bottleneck and slow down for everybody. So that's the practical effect of net neutrality when you're at a, a high use scenario relative to your capacity. Um, and because of that, what you have is that you have a lot of tech companies. So uh, Google, which owns YouTube, Facebook, Apple, they are all in favor of net neutrality because they make their money off of content. They make their money off of those high bandwidth applications that theoretically would be penalized if you did not have these rules in place. Because if you're charging more to get faster speeds or if you're throttling bandwidth, slowing down these high bandwidth applications, theoretically that makes their products, these videos and such, less useful so they would make less money. On the other side of that, you have the infrastructure providers, people like Comcast, which runs Xfinity, uh, AT&T, which has Uverse, Charter, which has Spectrum, and recently bought Time Warner Cable. These guys want to get rid of net neutrality because, of course, they want to charge more money for you to get access to these high bandwidth applications. Or if they're not going to charge you, the end user, more money because they just don't have the market power to do that, they want to have the ability to negotiate with providers like, for example, Netflix, which uses very high bandwidth video, also streamed in HD, uh, charge those companies to try and recoup some investment for the infrastructure that they're putting into a place and theoretically expanding. So it's something where, as a guy that studied tech, I mean, I spent years doing computer science stuff. Uh, and then, of course, even after college, I still look around it. I can see both sides of the argument. But the key point here is to remember that neither side is acting altruistically. No matter what anyone says on Twitter, no matter what talking points you happen to hear, this is not an altruistic battle of people who are looking out for your interests. Both sides are looking out for their own interests. The tech companies want to keep making money off of their high bandwidth applications, even if that means producing stuff that clogs the pipes for everyone else who just want to search Wikipedia. On the other end, the infrastructure providers want to make more money and want to be able to recoup that money from somewhere. You know, they can't charge you $300 a month for faster internet speeds, but theoretically they could extort money from Apple or Google or Netflix or whoever to try and make up for that. You know what I mean? So I just want to kind of give you that overview because a lot of people don't know the first damn thing about it. And as a guy that 
again, has my undergraduate degree in computer science, it aggravates the fuck out of me because I'm looking at the tech side of it and the law side of it with my law degree, and I'm looking at Twitter and commentators that just completely and deliberately misunderstand what the fuck is going on, and it drives me bonkers. So that's my political snippet for this podcast. Let's dive into some of the uh, criminal justice news. Uh, Oh, sorry. Before we get into criminal justice stuff, I do have an aside. So the Brookings Institution, a guy named Andre Perry from the Metropolitan Policy Program, has a new study out on historically black colleges and universities, which is where I went to law school. North Carolina Central University is an HBCU. And he's done a study where he basically looks at uh, census and income data, a study from the United Negro College Fund, data from the Department of Education, combines all of this together to kind of evaluate not so much the explicit dollar impact of an HBCU in the community, but to kind of talk about parameters you look at to figure out what kind of economic value an HBCU would provide. Uh, And the gist of it is that the presence of an HBCU in a community by itself is not enough to lift median earnings for a non-white family above the national median, uh, but it does have a positive impact on earnings for that particular community where it happens to be located. So I'm going to give you a link in the show notes for this study. Uh, It's interesting stuff. He's got another study where he looks at Uh, I think there's a total of, oh, I'm going to fuck up the number, so I'm not going to say it. But essentially, he looks at all of the majority black cities in the country, finds that several of them actually do have median incomes that are above the national uh, median, and kind of goes into why those communities are not getting the investment that similarly situated white communities are when they seem to be producing economic output that's above what you would expect. Um, So that's linked as part of this new study as well. So we're going to give you both of those. But as a guy who graduated from an HBCU, it's interesting to me to see the value they provide kind of reduced to econometrics, if you will. Like, I, you know, I got a lot of experience at Central that's not something I can quantify numerically. You know what I mean? Having to be in an environment where I'm not in the majority is a weird thing for a white guy. You know, I feel like I learned a lot from that, grew from that. It's made me a more capable attorney. Uh, But you can't put a dollar value on that. So seeing this type of work where you can reduce it down to a dollar amount and show that they are, in fact, positive vessels in their communities uh, is pretty neat. So I'll give you a link to that. All right, now, criminal justice news for real. So let's start at the national level. The Department of the Treasury has finished an investigation uh, into software called Computer Cop that was distributed by over 200 different law enforcement agencies. Theoretically, the software was supposed to keep kids safe from predators online, but surprise, uh, it actually was malware. So it included a keystroke logger that logged every single key you pressed and sent all of that data to an unencrypted server. So here's an excerpt, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who I love, if you're not familiar with EFF, go familiarize yourself with them. Uh, They had a story on this. Here's an excerpt, it says, quote, Computer Cop is a CD-ROM, now also available on a USB storage stick, that promises to help parents protect their children from internet predators. More than 240 agencies signed contracts with Computer Cop, often worth tens of thousands of dollars. Those are taxpayer dollars, by the way. Uh, But the software was less about safety 
than it was about self-promotion. Elected law enforcement officials, including sheriffs, mayors, and district attorneys, placed their images on the cover and recorded promotional videos about how the software was the first step to protecting children online. By and large, the free software giveaway was used to generate positive media coverage. EFF technologists dissected the software and discovered that it contained a key logging feature that monitored everything a computer user typed. Whenever a keyword was entered, the software transmitted the text to a third-party commercial email server. That's theoretically how the parents found out about this, by the way. Uh, but not only was this feature invasive and easily abused, it also had a major technical vulnerability. The software transmitted communications openly and unencrypted so that it could be easily intercepted and read by malicious actors. So basically, anyone could get your shit. Police were giving you malware that exposed you to criminals. The cops were doing this. Uh, well, the Department of the Treasury conducted an investigation because they were trying to figure out, after EFF first reported on this years ago, why so many police departments were giving out bogus software. Uh, basically, the company behind Computer Cop had fabricated an endorsement letter claiming that it was endorsed by the Department of the Treasury. Police departments bought it. Um, well, it turns out that letter was bogus, but the executives will not be charged because the statute of limitations has passed. So that is the federal news. Out of California, in Alameda County, the sheriff has installed a license plate reader outside of the emergency room for Highland Hospital. I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of that is, uh, assuming it's going to be to try and catch drug addicts, gun runners, I don't know. But this is one of those scenarios where if you think about what you're doing and you figure out the unintended consequences, why would you take someone to the hospital for treatment if doing so is going to lead to you getting arrested? What that happens is for folks that are on the margins deciding whether or not to make that decision, they're going to be less inclined to go. So this is another one of those catastrophically stupid ideas that somewhere police think makes sense. Uh, in Boyle Heights, a speeding police officer hit a car and then ran over a handful of pedestrians on the sidewalk, killing seven-year-old Jose Hernandez and nine-year-old Marco Hernandez. Uh, this was all in one day, by the way. There were three separate incidents of police flattening civilians in California. Uh, in Paris, California, a speeding police officer didn't have on his lights or sirens, which means also no dash cam because usually those are all connected together. Uh, hit and killed 15-year-old Leticia Ramirez. The official story is that Ramirez ran into the side of the car as it was traveling. How you do that and die, I don't really know. I'm sure theoretically it's possible. But given the fact the officer was speeding without his lights on, smells like bullshit to me. Uh, and then a third accident within this 24-hour period, also in Riverside County, which is where Paris is, uh, a officer hit a man crossing the street. That man luckily is in stable condition. We'll see what happens there. Uh, and then in Ventura County, 70-year-old Craig Coley has been pardoned after he spent 39 years in prison for a double murder that he did not commit. And he was exonerated because the state had DNA evidence that it didn't bother to test. It was just sitting there in the fucking evidence locker. And they found out that the DNA didn't match him. He was exonerated. The actual killer is still out there, theoretically, unless he's died or moved or no one knows because this guy's been in prison for 39 fucking years. Uh, so that's out of California. In Delaware, in Middletown, police issued 15 tickets, uh, quote, for doing something good. Uh, basically, it's the same scam they did in Texas where they pull you over and they give you a turkey. 
complete and total violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's really something they do to try and do spot checks without probable cause. They dress it up saying that, oh, it's because we're trying to give you this turkey. Um, don't be deceived by that. But that was in Delaware. Out of the District of Columbia, this is weird shit. So there's a trial going on about the J-20 protesters. So these are the folks that uh, at Trump's inauguration protested in D.C., there was some rioting that took place. The district attorney's office is prosecuting a lot of these folks. But in the opening statement for this trial on six of the protesters, the DA actually admitted point blank that they had no evidence that these protesters had engaged in any property destruction, but they were charging them for rioting anyway. Uh, from the Washington Post story says, quote, though there is no evidence the defendants caused any of that damage directly, the district attorney said, the government considers the entire group of protesters to be responsible. All of these people went to work on January 20th who work here in the district who were impacted by the riot that each of these defendants participated in, each playing a role in the violence and destruction moving together throughout this city. Think about how chilling that is, that you go to a protest, and if people who aren't you aren't affiliated with you, you all just happen to be involved in the same protest. You have no other relationship amongst yourselves. If anyone else in that protest destroys property, you find yourself charged. That's a fantastical violation of the First Amendment. It's totally ridiculous, and I hope the jury comes to its senses in this case ends up with a not guilty verdict. Uh, down in Georgia, in Atlanta, the New York Times has a long read on immigrations and customs enforcement and how essentially they're routinely raiding random people over minor traffic offenses. So if you make a right-hand turn without your signal, they will pull you over, arrest you, ship you off to a nice detention facility. Um, so go read that. Also out of Atlanta, baby AJ has gotten a kidney. You might recall we talked about him in a couple podcasts now. Uh, he was the kid who was born without kidneys. He actually had a birth defect, had no kidneys. His father was a match, could have given him a kidney. They had the same match blood type and everything else, but he was blocked from doing so because somehow he had violated his probation. So they decided, let's go ahead and sacrifice the two-year-old kid because his dad violated the probation. Stupid fucking idea. Uh, and then we reported in the podcast like a week after that, that because the kid without kidneys still had no kidneys, he had been taken to the hospital because he was gravely ill. Well, just before Thanksgiving, he did get a kidney transplant. So it was one little bit of good news. Also, some weird stuff. So out of Augusta, in the Augusta Chronicle, there's an op-ed from, uh, I'm not going to tell you who yet, uh, but there's an op-ed on the importance of sentencing reform and reducing sentences for low-level, nonviolent offenders. And it talks at length about how Georgia's changes to their sentencing uh, has been so great for the country and the people affected and everything else. Uh, and they're comparing Georgia to Texas, trying to encourage Texas to make similar reforms. The op-ed authors, uh, there's a Kelly McCutcheon, who is a head of a nonprofit down there. But the other one is Newt Gingrich. Yeah, the guy that endorsed Trump for president, that has been a shill for Trump every step of the way, that loves Jeff Sessions as attorney general, um, he's an author on this op-ed. So it's weird, because I totally agree with the op-ed. It's absolutely completely right. Our sentencing is totally fucked up, completely disproportionate, especially for minor offenses. But it's bizarre that Newt Gingrich will talk out of both sides of his mouth all the time, that he will go on Fox and talk about this crime wave we're dealing with and all the other stupid policies that Attorney General Beauregard has been promoting, but then write an, uh, an editorial in the Augusta Chronicle talking about how great Georgia's changes to sentencing are. It's just weird. So I'll give you that link. You can go read it 
repeat yourself. Uh, up in Illinois, in Chicago, this is a... <laughs> I was reading through, I shouldn't laugh, so this isn't funny, but I, I was trying to research this story because the uh, news station that first tweeted it out deleted the entire, not just deleted the tweet, but deleted the entire story. So I can't actually figure out what was going on. Um, so I found some court filings and I, I went back and it's, it's a mess. So the gist of what I have been able to find out, and if you happen to live in Chicago, please tweet me corrections if I get any of this wrong. Um, but police officer Robert Rialmo killed 19-year-old Quintonio Legreer back in 2015. Uh, there also was a 55-year-old woman, Betty Jones, who was standing near Legreer, and the officer killed her too just because, because apparently he was in a mood to kill people. Uh, well, it turns out Rialmo sued Quintonio Legreer's estate, claiming that even though he killed the kid, uh, he the, the shooting caused trauma to him, so the estate should pay for his trauma. Uh, Officer Rielmo also sued the city, saying that he was inadequately trained for dealing with that situation when he ended up killing multiple people. And then the family of Betty Jones, the 55-year-old who was killed, sued Rielmo in the city, uh, claiming that he violated her civil rights by using excessive force. So, so far as I've been able to find, there are at least three different lawsuits going on all at the same time right now uh, relating to this 2015 killing. Well, in the Jones case, the one brought by the family of the 55-year-old woman, the officer has now signed a stipulation agreeing that he knew that she was standing near Greer when he shot and killed her uh, and fired his weapon repeatedly anyway without any regard for her proximity or safety. Um, so that was the, the news story that, that triggered all of this, is this admission by the officer that, yeah, he knew he was staying there and he just didn't give a fuck. Um, so I'll give you that link to the most recent iteration of the story and you can piece it together uh, if I've missed something there. Uh, also out of Chicago, Officer Marco Proano has been sentenced to five years federal time uh, for shooting at a car full of teenagers back in 2013. He had pulled over a Toyota where it, he had pulled them over for speeding, essentially. Uh, and it looks like from the dash cam video that they may have been backing up. Can't really tell. And he basically just completely unloaded his entire gun, fired every single bullet in the magazine. Well, a jury convicted him of using excessive force. And then, of course, the that's the guilt phase. And then you have the sentencing phase where the officer insisted that he wasn't trying to hurt anybody, uh, which really, to, to say something like that really does not make any sense because the entire purpose of shooting someone is to hurt them, especially if you shoot them multiple times. A typical gun magazine for police has 17 rounds in it. Why the fuck you would shoot 17 rounds and supposedly not intend to hurt someone, I don't really know. Uh, but essentially, the judge said that he wasn't buying that argument, that the uh, officer showed no remorse, and then his explanation didn't make sense when you considered the dash cam footage. So he sentenced him to 60 months and described his actions as, quote, a deliberate, reckless attempt to stop the occupants of the vehicle at the maximum force possible. Uh, you will be shocked, shocked to find out that the occupants he was trying to stop were all black teenagers because, of course, black lives are expendable when you work in law enforcement in Chicago. Uh, in Kansas, in Wyandot, Wyandot County, uh, back in October, Lamont McIntyre was released after spending 23 years in prison for a double murder that he didn't commit. You might notice that's a theme going on this week. Uh, well, the New York Times has a long-read write-up on all of the things that, quote, went wrong, unquote, uh, that enabled him to be 
put away for that particular crime. Uh, essentially, there was a detective who was ignoring witnesses unless they would agree to sleep with him. There was a photo array that was not a true photo array. It was totally botched. Uh, the department refused to examine evidence they had and then stopped collecting evidence once they felt confident they could get a conviction, which is not how you're supposed to conduct a, um, a crime scene, uh, de- um, evidence collection. Uh, so the moral of the story is this guy had 23 years of his life robbed from him for something he didn't do. The actual killer, still out there, again, a common theme, when the government screws up. So I will give you that link. It's some uh, some sobering stuff. Uh, out of Kentucky in Louisville, there was a first rule of Fisk moment uh, where Jefferson Town High School, there was a fight between two students over a pair of headphones. The school resource officer, which is the fancy name we give cops who work in schools, uh, called the main police department for backup as he tried to help break up the fight. And we, we don't really know what happened. The explanation is that one of these students involved in the fight had a brother who was trying to get involved and ended up hitting one of the officers or tackling him or something to that effect. We don't know. What we do know is that that student was then thrown to the ground and had three officers on top of him. The officer in front is pinning his head onto the floor. The second officer has his knee on the kid's back and tases him. And then there's a third officer who is kicking the kid repeatedly, even though he's already down being restrained. Uh, And then eventually you see the second officer who has the taser get up and wave his taser around at this crowd of students that are around, like it's a loaded gun, basically trying to get all of them to get back. And then near the end, all this is on video, by the way. That's the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Uh, At the end of the video, you hear an officer tell the student who is recording to stop recording, even though recording is absolutely, totally legal. Um, So that is in Kentucky. We'll give you a link to that. You can watch the video yourself. In Louisiana, you got two stories out of there. In Slidell, there's a profile on Jamal Cox who is serving a life sentence for running away from police. Essentially, they talk about Louisiana's habitual felon law, where essentially this kid, when he was 19, uh, pled guilty to felony burglary, which was stupid, uh, but sometimes that's what happens. And then having a a felony, you're not allowed to have a gun. That's a federal firearms violation. Uh, So he ended up getting a second felony for possession of a firearm by a felon. Well, then more or less had a clean record but was pulled over by police and fled about a block because he was near home. Uh, And because of that fleeing, he was charged with felony fleeing police and was convicted. And under the habitual felon law that existed at the time, if you had two other felonies within a 10-year period that makes you a habitual felon, his prior felonies were within that 10-year period by seven days. Uh, So nine years, 358 days uh, apart, ended up that was good enough to tag him with a life sentence. And essentially now uh, Louisiana's habitual felon law has been changed so that you can only use offenses within a five-year window, but it is not made retroactive. So he will continue spending the rest of his life in prison. This is part of a long overdue discussion that needs to be had in this country about how we choose to punish crime. If you think about it, there is no state in the nation where killing someone takes a life sentence, except in the most severe cases. You know, manslaughter, no state gives you a life sentence for that. Second degree murder, no state gives you a life sentence for that. They give you long sentences. It could be 20, 30, 50 years. 
but no one gives you life without parole. And here is this guy getting life without parole for fleeing police, which is bad, but that carries a two-year sentence. But because of this stupid enhancement that relates to conduct that happened nine years and 300-something days ago, the taxpayers of Louisiana will be shelling out an obscene sum of money to take care of this guy's every need for the rest of his life. Now, his family is losing out. He's losing out because, of course, he's incarcerated, can't see them. But the taxpayers are losing out, too, because this guy who's not really a threat to the community and theoretically would become a normal, productive citizen in a few years if he wasn't already, uh, instead is going to continue being paid for by taxpayers because we treat him as a threat in a way that we don't even treat murderers as a threat. It's stupid. It's completely mind-bogglingly stupid and defies all logical sense. So that is out of Slidell in Baton Rouge. Speaking of stuff that makes no logical sense, so in Baton Rouge, uh, the city is renegotiating its contract with the police union for 2018, and it includes some new provisions that are abject insanity. Uh, so there's a group called Together Baton Rouge that actually investigated this particular contract and tweeted out some of the provisions. Uh, for example, Article 11, subpart B.2 and B.3 of the contract require that, quote, all references to any internal investigations must, quote, be purged after 18 months, even if the findings are sustained. So if you've got a police officer who commits something, you know, wrongdoing, crime or otherwise, and internal investigation says, yep, he's a bad officer, in 18 months, that all goes away. Uh, Article 9.B.4 provides that all records will be destroyed of investigations into certain subsets of crimes, specifically sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. And these will be destroyed even if those allegations are validated by the investigation found to be true. Uh, and then Article 20 requires that, quote, only one personnel folder on each officer can be maintained by any number of departments, which means that these removals, these purges, these destructions, as this internal affairs stuff gets deleted, that deletion is permanent. There's no longer going to be a record to track an officer's wrongdoing. Now, contrast that with you or I, the mere act of us getting arrested generates a criminal record that is then is a public record, follows us around for the rest of our lives, uh, at the very least hits Google and will follow you on Google for the rest of your life, but also follows you with most state databases unless you have a state that provides for expungement in the event that the case gets dismissed. And here you have people that are theoretically public servants being paid by you and I to serve us getting preferential treatment that is nuts. Like, this is beyond nuts. You could theoretically have a career bad officer with repeated violations of department policy, and no one would ever know about it because all of the stuff gets deleted before he goes shifting over to another department. It's crazy. Uh, so that is all the stuff out of Louisiana, in Maryland, out of Baltimore. We're going to have to make the fourth rule of Fisk official. I think we're going to officially do it. Uh, the fourth rule of Fisk will be... And I quote, The Wire was a documentary. Uh, so back last week, the day before we recorded, I can't remember if it was Saturday or Sunday, whatever day it was, there was a tweet out about a police officer who had died during a transport to the hospital. Uh, his name was Sean Souter. And I didn't include it in the podcast at the time because we had no real details. I had a tweet showing that there was police activity around an accident. Um, well, it turns out 
this is all comes out at a press conference uh, after the evening news has already done its thing the night before Thanksgiving. So this past Wednesday, uh, police commissioner Kevin Davis disclosed that Souter was operating in a precinct that didn't have closed circuit TV cameras like several of the others, was shot with his own gun, had the accident on his way to the hospital so he couldn't get medical treatment. And here is the kicker. The very next day, he was scheduled to testify before a federal grand jury against other Baltimore police officers who had been indicted. Uh, so you might recall, those of you that have watched The Wire, there's a story about, I can't remember, it might be the first season uh, where one of the witnesses ends up dead. Um, I tell you, the, the show was a documentary. If you've not seen it, go watch it. It's phenomenal. So that's out of Maryland. In Massachusetts, there's a profile in the Boston Globe on the Middlesex Jail and House of Correction where they are trying out a new experiment starting in January. They're going to be the first jail in the nation that anyone's aware of where they're creating a dedicated cell block for young offenders ages 18 to 24 and providing a lot of what are called wraparound services. So things that you would get from other agencies normally, uh, not typically available in the jail. So things like teaching you how to be a productive citizen, learning how to budget for your rent and for transportation, um, being able to talk through conflicts as opposed to just being put into solitary confinement, uh, being able to actually hold your children when they're coming for visiting hours, all of this stuff. They're going to try this in Massachusetts and see if it has any impact on recidivism rates. And if it works, hopefully it's something that they'll expand out in other jails across the state, and other states can look into it. Uh, out of Minnesota, in Morris, two student radio hosts on the student station KUMM called Deplorable Radio is the name of their show, uh, apparently said the word tranny on air, and because of that, the police were called, the students were kicked off of the air immediately and told to leave the radio station, claiming that they had violated FCC regulations. Now, Again, this is one of those derogatory words and phrases that you just don't use because it means you're an asshole, but it's not a violation of the law. There was no need to call campus police. There are no, of course, any FCC regulations banning the use of that particular term. And this is one of those scenarios where campus academics aren't doing themselves any favors when you have conservatives talking about how utterly batshit crazy they are and then they go call police because they're offended by a particular word choice. There are other ways to deal with things that don't involve the armed agents of the government showing up. So that story was out of Minnesota, out of Mississippi. Uh, deputies in Harrison County have summarily executed 15-year-old Seth William Johnson. Uh, they were visiting his home because they claimed that he stole a truck. Apparently, Mr. Johnson answered the door with a knife on him, and they shot him once point-blank in the chest. The story for this, so one of the interesting things is that the police have kind of done the same kabuki dance they always do, where they release enough information to make it look like everything they did was justified, but then when the media wants to ask questions, they say, no, no, we can't ask questions, There's, we can't answer questions, there's an investigation going on. Uh, so in the story, the police sheriff, sorry, the sheriff, he's an elected official, Troy Peterson, uh, from the Harrison County Sheriff's Office, declined to answer questions Wednesday, Wednesday, citing the ongoing investigation, saying, quote, I don't have any issues with what happened, but the facts need to come out at one time. Elsewhere in the story, he referred to Johnson as, quote, an armed suspect uh, in a news release that he released. 
but then also when he talked to the media, called him a victim. So that's there's some fuckery going on here. Not sure what it is, and we're not going to know until the police have had a chance to investigate. But the, you just notice certain patterns, and this is fitting here. But here we go. Another 15-year-old kid is dead. Uh, out of Missouri, there's a federal court ruling where a judge has essentially blocked the St. Louis Police Department from any... Uh, basically declaring any unlawful protests, because you might remember we talked a couple months ago about the uh, acquittal of killer cop Jason Stockley, and he's the guy who uh, killed Anthony Lamar Smith, shot him in the back, uh, and there were protests in St. Louis at the time, and the police arrested a bunch of people, including at least one undercover officer, a guy who was a uh, sergeant in the Air Force, a bunch of other people. Then you had the video where the police are chanting, whose streets are streets, and a bunch of other shit acting like gang members as opposed to actual police officers. Well, a lot of folks filed suit because that was a violation of their First Amendment rights. And the judge who heard the, um, the initial request for a temporary restraining order blocking the department from violating people's rights as the case is ongoing uh, was persuaded. And the order says, quote, plaintiff's evidence both video and testimony, shows that officers have exercised their discretion in an arbitrary and retaliatory fashion to punish protesters for voicing criticism of police or recording police conduct. When all of the evidence is considered, plaintiffs have met their burden of showing that they are likely to succeed on their claim that the defendant has a custom or policy of deploying handheld pepper spray against citizens engaged in recording police or in expressive activity critical of police in retaliation for their exercise of their First Amendment rights. And that is all in violation of the First, Fourth, and Fourteenth Amendments. So as a result of this, the judge has decided that the police cannot declare an unlawful assembly unless there's a clear and present threat and cannot use the law to punish people engaged in protected activities. She also said that chemical agents, so pepper spray, can't be used unless there is probable cause to arrest a person and the police can't threaten to use pepper spray against anyone engaged in expressive, nonviolent activity. So this is huge. I mean, it's something where you do not have, and I keep saying that all the time, I apologize. When I, you hear me say it's something where, that's like one of my go-to phrases. But this is one of those situations where a federal judge to restrain a police department, it's not unheard of, but it's pretty damn close. It very rarely happens. And it confirms that the department totally violated the Constitution when it was doing this shit back during the protests after the acquittal. So we give you the link to that. It will include a link to the uh, judge's order itself so you can read it as well. Uh, out of New York, so New York City has been going out of their way to promote people engaged in sexual harassment, kind of opposite of the rest of the country. Uh, so NYPD Captain Peter Rose is getting a promotion. He is the guy that decided that investigating rapes was not a big deal because they weren't, quote, true rapes. Um, so this is from the story, quote, addressing an uptick of reported rapes in his precinct. Uh, Captain Rose drew a distinction between sexual attacks from a stranger versus someone the victim knew. Some of them were Tinder, some of them were hookup sites, some of them were co-workers. It's not a trend that we're worried about, because out of the 13 rapes, only two were true rapes. 
Rose said. Uh, got news for you. A uh, rape is a rape. It doesn't matter if you knew the person or not. Uh, actually, in a good number of sexual assault cases, the victim knew her attacker. It's still against the fucking law. Uh, so he's getting a promotion now because this is the type of guy that the NYPD promotes. But not to be outdone. So that guy was promoted from captain to deputy inspector. Uh, not to be outdone, Timothy Kelly, who is a current deputy inspector, is being promoted to inspector, uh, even though he was punished following allegations that he sexually assaulted one of his subordinates. He ended up being punished with uh, losing 20 days vacation, and he is now getting a promotion because this is the type of guy that the NYPD promotes. Speaking of the NYPD, you might recall the story from last month where two NYPD officers arrested a girl theoretically for drugs, then raped her in the back of a patrol car and left her on the side of the road. Uh, we then talked about their defense later on was that she had posted pictures on her social media sites, basically asking for it, essentially. Uh, they claimed that it, were, it was consensual. Well, they now have new information out that as she was at the hospital trying to get treatment for being raped by two NYPD officers, nine NYPD officers showed up at her uh, hospital room to try and convince her not to press charges. Uh, so that's some fucked up shit there. We do have some good news out of New York City. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. There's a story that was shared by the Foundation for Economic Education, but it links to other stories within it, including Be the Change, where they're essentially talking about a bakery in New York City called Ovenly that was founded in 2010. And one of the things they do, aside from being a bakery, is that they work with a program uh, called Getting Out and Staying Out, where they essentially work with people who have been through jail, been through prison, uh, and bring them on and as a basically a trial period, as a trial baker, if you will, uh, where they look at different people within the pre-existing bakery and shadow them and try and figure out if they have skills that could be developed to become uh, bona fide employees of the bakery and basically get back on their feet and get their life together. Uh, so it's a lengthy story and it's got several links within it that you'll want to listen to, including a podcast interview. Uh, but I'll give you that link. But that's that's a one of the things where it's good to see private businesses looking past uh, folks' criminal records, past times in prison and jail, and giving them a chance to show that they actually can you know, be productive functioning members of society. Too many times you have people that once they see a record, an employer's like, nope, not going to talk to you. Uh, so it's really cool to have someone step up and give these folks a chance. So we'll give you that link. Out of my home state here in North Carolina, Charlotte, Mecklenburg County, has officially ended in-person visitation at their jails. Uh, they have installed video visitation software about a year ago, and the idea at the time it was installed was that theoretically this would be a supplement to in-person visits. Uh, now the county commission and the sheriff's department has said, LOL, JK, bye. You now can no longer visit inmates in the jail. You might remember we did talk about in a prior podcast a study from the Prison Policy Initiative that was featured in Wired.com that showed if you had video visitation and you made that a bona fide supplement to in-person visitation so you could do both, it increased the number of visits an inmate got and also reduced recidivism rates because this person is now seeing on a more regular basis the stuff they're missing being in jail and they don't want to go back. 
But what they also found was that often video visitation is a scam. It's a way to get rid of in-person visitation entirely, and they charge a shitload of money to the families and the inmates to use the service for what is essentially shittier service. So you're paying for Skype, but you're not getting Skype quality. Uh, so we'll give you the link to that story. It's a sad change out of Mecklenburg County. It's going to be counterproductive in the long run, especially given the impact on recidivism rates. But I'm not a policymaker in Charlotte, so we'll see what shakes out. Uh, do have some good news out of Durham. Again, don't let it be said that I don't report good news. It does happen. Um, there was a woman here in Durham whose home was damaged in a weekend fire. The The home itself was not too badly damaged, but the um, a pair of windows and a side door were severely screwed up. And given the temperatures we've had here, where overnight lows go well below freezing, uh, basically the woman was sleeping in her car with the car running so she could run the heat to stay warm overnight. Not a good scenario to be in. Uh, well, Officer B.L. Taylor and D.R. Johnson, who were uh, on their days off, went to this woman's home and bought some plywood and boarded up the windows and the side door so that the house could actually retain some of the heat so that she wouldn't have to be sleeping in her car during Thanksgiving. Uh, out of Oklahoma, y'all are going to have some fun if you live in Oklahoma. And by fun, I mean it's going to be a pain in your ass. Uh, the state has now finalized a deal with a Massachusetts company where they are going to roll out license plate scanners pretty much everywhere. And if you happen to be uninsured, they're going to issue you an automatic ticket for $184. So the program is expected to issue 20,000 citations a month. So you do the math on how much money that is going to raise for the government. Uh, if you're assuming, you know, 184 a ticket, I don't know how many of them would actually pay it, but you're looking at roughly $3 million, give or take. Uh, if you assume 80% of those tickets end up getting paid, it's $3 million. This is all a fundraiser. It's all a fucking scam. Because if you think about it, the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution says, and I quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. You can't confront a camera. So this is another one of those situations. Sorry, I'm using that again. You're going to hear that like seven times in this podcast. I apologize. Um, where because they're only sending you a fine, it's only a financial penalty, theoretically, that is not a criminal violation since it doesn't infringe on your liberty. Uh, they think that that's going to be fine. It won't be a Sixth Amendment violation. And I'm of two minds on this because on the one hand... We all know this is a scam to make money. I mean, the fact that they're already expecting 200,000 citations a month, how the fuck would you know that? You know, you have no idea. This is all a budget projection. That's what this is. You are figuring out how many tickets you have to issue to raise a certain dollar amount. Uh, but the other side of it is that when I talked about ending taillight policing in Durham as part of my Senate campaign, I got a lot of pushback because people were insisting that we have to pull people over for these types of things. And my idea was that, no, you really, you don't. You All you have to do is punch in their license plate and you can have the DMV send them a notice saying, hey, your taillight is out. This program proves that my idea could theoretically work. Now, obviously the government's doing it to raise money and they're not doing it in North Carolina, but you don't have to have these taillight traffic stops. The only reason we do them is to try and find other ways to raise money, even though it's dangerous to both police and to motorists. 
Um, so we'll see how this all rolls out. The long story is essentially you're going to be getting a camera on you all the time in Oklahoma on the theory that you are an ever-present threat to public safety because you might theoretically have an uninsured vehicle. Out of Tennessee, we've got another story uh, that we've visited before. Out of White County, and sometimes the jokes write themselves, uh, Judge Sam Benningfield, you might remember we mentioned, was running a eugenics program out of his courtroom. He would give you time off of your sentence if you agreed to be sterilized. Uh, well, he has been reprimanded by the Tennessee Board of Judicial Conduct, and part of the letter of reprimand is ridiculous. Uh, what they say is, quote, You have acknowledged that even though you were trying to accomplish a worthy goal in preventing the birth of substance-addicted babies, you now realize that this order could unduly coerce inmates into undergoing a surgical procedure which would cause at least a temporary sterilization, and it was therefore improper. I got news for y'all. A guy who's addicted to drugs uh, can't get a baby addicted to drugs. That's not how that works. Now, if the mom is addicted to drugs, okay, that's a problem. But a guy being an addict, his sperm doesn't carry addiction with it, okay? So that's just not how biology works, even though it's mostly guys being considered for these reductions in exchange for a vasectomy. So this quote-unquote worthy goal is bullshit, but then, buried in the middle of the, uh, of the story further down, they note, quote, the letter also reprimanded Judge Benningfield for threatening to end an unrelated house arrest program if a defense attorney refused to withdraw a valid objection regarding a client's probation. So this judge basically is accustomed to playing God. Even when he fucks up, if you have the temerity to say, hey, judge, that's a problem, uh, he's basically going to find some other way to ruin your life. This guy's ridiculous. He needs to be removed from the bench, but instead he's only going to get a public reprimand, hoping that this embarrassment, quote-unquote, assuming he's embarrassed, uh, that the embarrassment will get him to change his ways. Uh, so that's out of Tennessee. In Texas, in Culberson County, uh, Customs and Border Patrol agent Rogelio Martinez was, uh, he died earlier this week. I was about to say he was killed, and there's a reason for that. Uh, he died earlier this week because he was responding to a tripped sensor along the border. Uh, our papaya potus, Donald Trump, tweeted out that he was, quote, killed, uh, then spoke in a brief that he was, quote, beaten up very badly. Uh, Ted Cruz issued a statement talking about the threat presented by the border and it being unsecured. Uh, the governor got in on it a little bit. The Border Patrol Agents Association issued a statement claiming that he had been killed by people throwing stones. And all of this didn't make any sense to people because there was no indication in this particular area that there was a lot of border crossings in order for there to be you know, so many people throwing stones to overpower them. There was no indication that shots were fired. These guys wear a bunch of body armor and everything else. So the whole story just didn't make any sense. Well, it turns out, based on the information that is now available, uh, essentially the guy fell into a ditch. There's a 14-foot ditch along the side of the road. It was dark that night. He fell into it, ended up with a lot of broken bones and a broken skull. 
and also the county sheriff, Oscar Carrillo, who's working with the FBI task force to kind of deal with this particular situation, uh, said, quote, the injuries to Martinez after talking to his doctors were consistent with a fall, very consistent with a fall. And yet you've got all of the politicians going out of their way to present this like this was a homicide because they're trying to get money for a border wall that they're not going to build because we already have border protections in place. Uh, so that's out of Culberson County in Mesquite. There's a follow-up on Lindo Jones. We mentioned him last week. He was the unarmed black guy who was shot twice for trying to break into his own truck and then was handcuffed to a hospital bed for six days. Well, even though he was released, he's now back in the hospital due to complications from that shooting. Hopefully he will pull through. Uh, but there's also a grand jury being convened to decide whether or not to indict Officer Derek Wiley, who was the 35-year-old who shot him, uh, who is on paid administrative leave as this goes on. So he shot a guy twice for breaking into his own car. We know that for certain. And he's getting a paid vacation. So that's out of Texas. In Virginia, uh, where I was born, uh, in Norfolk, just up the street from where I grew up, uh, Sarah Sims has a daughter who is being bullied at Ocean View Elementary School. She talked to the teachers, talked to the principal. They did nothing about it. So Sims did what a lot of other parents would do. She got one of the digital recorders put it in her daughter's book bag, hoping to get evidence of the bullying that she could then bring to the teachers and the administration. Well, she is now being charged with a felony violation of Virginia's wiretapping act. And she's also being charged with misdemeanor contributing to the delinquency of a minor. This is nuts. This is insane. So let's talk about wiretapping very briefly. So essentially every state in the country has some type of law relating to electronic eavesdropping on someone's conversation called a wiretap. The main distinction among the states is what is called a one-party consent state, which means that as long as one party to the conversation knows about and consents to the monitoring, it's legal. And a two-party or all-party consent, where everyone who's participating in the conversation has to know about it. Most states are one-party consent states. Um, and the argument is that in this case, no party consented to it, therefore it's a felony. Well, theoretically, the daughter consented to it because obviously her mom was trying to help her from bullying and she's a minor. So the mom gets to make the decision on certain things. Even if she, the daughter didn't consent, the mom consented on her behalf as her legal guardian. So even if theoretically the mom did violate the statute, why the fuck are you charging her? You have a daughter who is being bullied by kids at the school. You should welcome the gathering of evidence to help prove that that's what's going on so you can take remedial measures. You will be shocked, shocked to discover that both the mom and the daughter are black. Uh, so, folks, that is the state-by-state -state criminal justice news for this week. Let's go ahead and get into our Law 140 segment. It is a special one where we have an interview with guest Peter Romery. Uh, he is with a company called QVerity Legal, and they used to do continuing legal education classes for lawyers. I've taken all of their classes. Uh, I've got all of their books. I apply it regularly in my profession. I love the stuff that they teach. It works exceptionally well. Uh, that's why I brought him on the show. So uh, we've got a 30-minute talk. I want you to pay attention. I think you're going to like it, hopefully. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into our Law 140 segment this week on detecting deception, how to spy the lie.
Folks, thank you for sticking with us through the break. We are now in our hashtag Law140 section of the podcast where I have a special guest this week. Uh, we've got an attorney, Peter Romery. Peter, how are you? I'm doing great, Greg. How are you? I'm doing good. So look, before we get into anything, I feel compelled to note that the Law 140 section of the podcast is where we bring in the heavy hitters who really know what they're talking about. So the normal part of the podcast, I can talk to anybody, but if you end up being a guest on the Law 140 section, we're trusting that you're an expert. The only guy we've had as a guest in the Law 140 segment was Jeff Neiman, a district attorney from Orange County, who talked to us about juries. So I hope you're up to the task. I hope so. I truly hope so. Well, give me a quick rundown about you. How did you uh, become skilled at this issue of detecting deception? What's your background? Okay. Well, um, I originally come from the UK. As you can probably tell, this isn't an eastern North Carolina accent. Uh, I got a law degree at the University of Reading, got another law degree at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, and during my time in practice and during my time in the UK, I was very interested, um, in intelligence work, both public and private intelligence work, mainly in the field of what's called protective intelligence or threat assessment. Um, surrounding that is quite a bit of psychology, which is also something that I think a lot of lawyers a lot of people involved in law are interested in. Um, and a number of years ago, well over a decade ago, uh, I became very interested because of interviewing, interrogating, uh, working with law enforcement. I was working, uh, doing training for law enforcement, for military, for government agencies. Um, I became interested in uh, detecting deception, not in becoming a human lie detector. There's no such thing as a human lie detector. Uh, but I became very interested in it. And when I was out involved uh, in a conference in Las Vegas um, on protective intelligence, I got to meet and know some folks from this is about a decade ago, some folks uh, who had left CIA uh, and who uh, had formed a company called QVerity. And their expertise, if you will, was interview, elicitation, and detection of deception. Uh, very interesting to me because it's something, as I said, I've been studying, I've been looking at, I've been uh, trained in in some way, shape, or form, but nothing as intensive as theirs. Uh, I became a partner in Qverity, uh, became their general counsel, um, got uh, extra training from Phil Houston. Phil was a 26-year veteran of CIA, and he developed this uh, methodology. And uh, the methodology is one that's essentially three steps. The, the base for it is detection of deception. Then there is interviewing, which are the skills to be able to get information from people uh, and then elicitation, what some people would refer to as interrogation, uh, where you're doing more of the talking. You as the interrogator are doing more of the talking than the other person. Uh, so we've done that. We've worked for both the government and the private sector, uh, both here and overseas, uh, have been involved in a large number of interviews, screenings, interrogations, uh, have done training for government security services, uh, have served as contractors for that, and we have written two books, uh, the first of which was called Spy the Lie, 
uh, and that came out in about 2011. Uh, and I was a contributing editor for that. And then I was a co-author of the sequel to that, which came out in uh, around uh, 2012, 2013, uh, which was called Get the Truth. Uh, and the first was the detection of deception methodology. And the second was the uh, elicitation methodology. And both of them were New York Times bestsellers. And, and all of this just started after a conference in Las Vegas, huh? It had started before with my interest, but my, my role with QVerity started after a conference in Las Vegas. They say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but obviously this one this one didn't. And it's led to me sort of traveling around the globe, um, just back from the Middle East, uh, where I went with uh, a couple of my colleagues. And so you know, we, we traveled all over the place and... Um, I've also formed a law firm called QVerity Legal, where we service uh, QVerity's clients and provide some uh, legal protections for them, if you will, some privilege uh, when we're conducting investigations uh, or when litigation is ongoing and we're directing that litigation. Interesting. So you mentioned the three segments to this model that QVerity developed. I want to focus our conversation on the first third of that, this detection yeah. of deception piece. Yeah. And the reason why is that we're, we're kind of in what folks have described as a cultural moment when it comes to sexual harassment. I'm not convinced yes. that anything is going to change long term, but you had this bombshell report about Harvey Weinstein about, I guess, two months ago now. Yeah. Um, and that started a snowball where it's affected Weinstein, uh, Brett Ratner, who's another director, Kevin Spacey, the actor. It's mm -hmm. rolled through to news reporters, Mark Halperin, uh, Glenn Thrush of the New York Times. Uh, the day we're recording this, actually, Charlie Rose at CBS had been fired. And mm -hmm. it's even hit the, the halls of power where you've got uh, Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore is dealing with mm -hmm. some stuff. Uh, yeah, Senator Al Franken had people accuse him. And then Representative John Conyers from Michigan not only had accusations made against him, but it's been disclosed that there was actually documented settlements that had been kept quiet. You know, mm -hmm. in this type of environment, you know, not just with harassment, but really this this political environment we find ourselves in for the past year or so. It seems hard to distinguish fact from fiction. Yes. And, I, and I guess before we get into the details, as a general question, why is that? Why is it so hard for us to figure out what the truth is? Um, because people are very adept at concealing things. And uh, we also have a natural tendency. And I know that this sounds, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to say, no, I don't. But uh, a lot of people have a tendency to believe individuals. We want to believe individuals. We want to trust our friends and families. We want to trust uh, people that we work with. We have in the legal system the presumption of innocence. Um, and so even though after the fact, a lot of people will say, well, you know, I've never trusted uh, politicians or I've never trusted actors or I've never done this, or I've never done that. That's not exactly true. Most people have done. We have this bias or this tendency uh, to believe people. And there's also something called the halo effect. And if you've got actors, actresses, um, producers, directors, people who uh, have a broad appeal, they're liked, they're likable individuals, we admire them, then that halo effect getting us to like them is, is something that makes us trust them. 
and, and makes us believe them. And that's a bias that it's very difficult to shake. And again, people may say after the fact, oh, no, I didn't believe a word of it. But how many of them right now are prepared to go on record and say, yes, this person is being untruthful or no, this person is being truthful? I think in addition, there's a lot of confirmation bias with politicians um, people commit to one person, one party, whatever the case may be, and then they don't want to think or hear anything negative about the person they support. They're fine with anybody who's against them. So if, if you're a Democrat, you will believe anything that you're told about Republicans, but you won't believe it about Democrats. If you're a Republican, you'll believe anything you're told about Democrats, but you won't believe uh, that Republicans can be bad. So those, th all of those things factor in and they come together. And what you refer to as a, as a, uh, the snowball effect is that very quickly what we've seen, uh, in the last few weeks is that what started as a snowball has very quickly become an avalanche and now a lot more is coming out. And that's where Q Verity's work comes in and y'all are able to kind of sift between the, the wheat and the chaff, if you will, separate what's fact from fiction. That's what we do. Again, uh, I want to stress, you know, there's no such thing as a human lie detector. But what we're able to do is find areas where there's a lack of confidence, where there is evasion, where there is attack behavior, where it, it, it seems that people are doing things uh, that are indicative of covering up or being deceptive. And then we use questioning techniques to get the truth from them. And it's been very successful with what we've done. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about specifics. Let's talk about the model, if you will, that QVerity developed. What is it and how does it work? Okay. It's a model that Phil Houston and uh, some of his colleagues at CIA developed uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, what it does is it operates on a stimulus response system. So we don't speculate. We don't look at global behaviors. We don't say that just because somebody came in and sat in a chair with their arms folded and their legs crossed that they must be hiding something from us. Instead, what we do is we present a short, clear stimulus, which is a question. And then we look at the way in which somebody responds to that question. And you have verbal and nonverbal deceptive indicators. You know, some of those examples could be uh, failure to answer a question. So somebody's asked uh, a yes or no question. And what you get is an awful lot of information, but you never actually get an answer. Um, a refusal to answer, selective memory. You know, I have no independent recollection of that. Attacking the questioner, that's a big one, where people go after somebody who has questioned them or somebody who said something about them or attack a third party, for example, a, a newspaper. So they may say, well, you know, you're not going to believe so-and-so because they work for X news agency and they're all liars. And what we look for is for the first deceptive indicator to occur within the first five seconds after the stimulus. So the first deceptive indicator occurs within the first five seconds after the stimulus. That's because psychiatrists have told us that we, that's the only way we can reliably link that first deceptive indicator, that neurological reflex, if you will, to the stimulus. And then in total, we look for at least two deceptive indicators contained within one answer. So if somebody answers and their answer takes a minute, 
we've got to have a deceptive at least at least one deceptive indicator in the first five seconds and then at least two deceptive indicators of, of any variety you can have ver both verbal both nonverbal one verbal one nonverbal but we've got to have at least two over the course of that minute so the one in the first five seconds plus one or you could have eight in the first five seconds or one plus six later on so one deceptive indicator in the first five seconds and at least two contained within the answer and that's all we're looking for it's that simple a model um, and then we break it down and we, we teach people and these are contained within spy the lie what those deceptive indicators are Got it. And, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the model. You've mentioned some of the deceptive indicators, and I guess my challenge is a few of them that you mentioned we see in everything politically, yes. especially attacking the accuser. That's in every political statement I've seen involving yes. allegations of wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. How I'm trying to figure out how I want to word this question. I mean, I guess how do you tell that that's being deceptive versus just standard Washington DC operating procedure? Well, uh, yeah, the, the Potomac two step. Um, we, what we do is we've got to stick to the rule of the cluster. So you may have somebody who just attacks an accuser and that's it. Now they may attack the accuser five times, but we're only going to count that as one deceptive indicator. The only, uh, deceptive indicator that we count every time it happens. So, for example, if, if I attack, if I say, well, you know, you are um, uh, an idiot, you're a moron, you don't know what you're talking about, uh, you, you have no idea, you're not smart, I'm, all I'm going to do is I'm going to count that as one deceptive indicator because that's somebody just using the same thing again and again. The only one that we count every time it's used are what are called convincing statements. And what and are those? Give us some more details. Yeah, sure. Convincing statements are actually things that are used a heck of a lot by people who are being dishonest. They are statements that are made to convince you rather than to convey information. So, for example, uh, you may ask me, did you steal the money from the box? And I'll say to you, did I steal the money from the box? You're asking me, I'm an honest person. I'm, I'm, I'm the most honest person you'd ever find. Ask any of my friends. They'll tell you. I'd never do something like that. I've got a great reputation. I'd, I'd never do something of that kind. That's something that a, a crook would do, and I'm not a crook. Every one of those is is a convince is trying to convince you I'm a good person, but have I answered your question? No. And so those are convincing statements. So when you get people who will say, look, you know, I'm they're asked a question, they say, look, I'm brilliant. I'm I'm smarter than than everybody else. I'm I'm the best person. Anybody can tell you I've been a huge success in everything that I've done. <laughs> they're not answering the question. They're just simply trying to convince you. And each one of those we count as a deceptive indicator. And so you get two of those. You're going to say this person's being deceptive in response to this question. Got it. Got it. So I've got to make clear to our listeners that you are politically neutral officially. You don't take uh -huh. sides. You just look for no. you know deception or not. I've pieced together some uh -huh. snippets from Harvey Weinstein, Roy yeah. Moore, and John Conyers that seem to me to indicate some degree of deception. And I just want you to let me know, am I on the right track or am I completely bonkers about it? Absolutely. So we'll start with Harvey Weinstein. So he issued this uh -huh 
lengthy statement, but it started out with this sentence. He says, quote, I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. That was the culture then. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Those are, there are convincing statements there. Those are very much. What he's, what he's saying to you is, is look, uh, when I came of age, it was a completely different time. It, you know, the, the social and societal norms were completely different. Um, the, the, these things that people are saying that I've done or these things that I may have been engaged in, um, and I'm not saying to you one way or the other whether or not I was, I'm, not, I'm neither confirming nor denying, but they were perfectly acceptable. So, so I'm not somebody who's outside of uh, the norm here. Why would I do something? This is just something that, that happened as I grew up. They're convincing statements. Got it. Um, he's not coming out and just saying, yep, I did it, and I'm really sorry that I did it. Instead, he's making excuses by convincing you that times were different then. Now, in that same statement, he also said, quote, I so respect all women. Is that a convincing statement as well? That's very much a convincing statement. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and then near the bottom, he says, quote, I am going to need a place to channel that anger. So I've decided that I'm going to give the NRA my full attention. I hope Wayne LaPierre will enjoy his retirement party. I'm going to do it at the same place I had my bar mitzvah. I'm making a movie about our president. Perhaps we can make it a joint retirement party. What is all that about? Those are attack behaviors. Those are attack behaviors because what he's doing is he's being facetious and he's being very sarcastic um, when he's saying, you know, I'm angry. I'm an angry, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an angry individual about all of this. How dare people accuse me of this? And so I'm going to go after the NRA. I'm going to give them my full attention. Um, I hope Wayne Lapierre will enjoy his retirement party. And then he also blends it in with, uh, hopefully we can have a joint retirement party with the president. So he's attacking Wayne Lapierre. He's attacking the president. He's just going after people. These are attack behaviors. Um, and he is, again, clustering them together in there. And this is telling you again that he's he's trying to get people to back off away from him or to come to his side and say, hey, you know what? Harvey's one of of us if we don't like the president or we don't like the NRA. Uh, He's on our side, so he's he's a nice fellow. So he's also trying to create that halo uh, for folks who he thinks are like him, but these are definitely attack behaviors that are not to do with what he, what he did. They're to do with going after people. Got it. All right. Let's talk a little bit of politics. So Roy Moore is the U S Senate candidate down in Alabama. There have been allegations against him that he, uh, repeatedly dated teenage girls when he was in his thirties. At least one of the accusers was 14 at the time. And she claimed that he sexually assaulted him. He had a radio interview with Sean Hannity that was on Hannity's radio show, and there were a couple examples from that 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 sprung out to me. Uh, One of them was a question from Hannity where Hannity says, what do you make of these allegations? And Roy Moore says, quote, well, Sean, first, let me say this. These allegations are completely false, false and misleading. But more than that, it hurts me personally because, you know, I'm a father, I have one daughter, I have five granddaughters, and I have a special concern for protection of young ladies. This is this is really hard to get on the radio and explain this, and as these allegations are just completely false. 
Okay. Well, first, again, uh, I'm, I'm going to restress. I'm, I am registered independent. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, as some may say, a pox on both their houses. I think there was another British guy who said that. Um, but the first thing I'd say is it, what an appalling question. It's a terrible qu- way of asking the question. Uh, you know, what do you make of these allegations? It's not a philosophy class, you know, so that is, it's just sort of, you know, what, what, what do you think about life? Uh, it was it was just a, a an awful question that was asked by Sean Hannity. But then uh, when you get to uh, Judge Moore, uh, what he does first is he essentially takes some time. We think at 10 times the speed we speak. So he's going to say, well, Sean, first let me say this. He's buying himself a little bit of time. He then says, he doesn't say, I have never dated a minor. I have never sexually molested or had any sexual relationship with a minor. Instead, he says, these allegations are completely false, false and misleading. He doesn't talk about the actual specifics. He says these allegations are false. And this is sort of akin to uh, somebody who's reading an indictment against themselves. And, uh, it, and this actually happened with, um, well, it's, it's happened in, in two cases, uh, one of which was Herman Cain. Uh, and the other was Martha Stewart. And both of them came out and said, I am innocent of what they accuse me of. Now, with Martha Stewart, it was to do with insider trading with Herman Cain. It's to do with sexual harassment and and having had an affair with a woman called uh, Ginger White. Imagine if you handed a an indictment to a client and they read it and they said, on November the 21st, uh, they did go into a bank with a shot gun and then they handed it back to you and they said what they accuse me i am innocent of what they accuse me of these allegations are false are they saying to you i've never robbed a bank are they saying i did not do it no what they're doing is they're saying these allegations are completely false so there may be something in there that is incorrect we need to dig deeper we need to ask better questions he then says the more but the more than that it hurts me personally he's trying to draw a halo and he's giving you convincing statements because, you know, I'm a father. I have one daughter. I have five granddaughters. I have a special concern for protection of young ladies. Well, that's about what do you make of these allegations? Well, he's given him a huge doorway to walk through there. But again, these don't answer the question about the allegations. Uh, you know, he wasn't asked, how many kids have you got? How many grandchildren have you got? Uh, do you care about protecting young ladies? He's putting this in there. And then he said, this is really hard to get on the radio and explain uh, this. And these allegations are just completely false. So again, he goes to these allegations are completely false. Well, I think a lot of people, uh, I would hope that if they were accused of having sexual contact with a 14-year-old, would say specifically, I have not ever had any type of sexual contact with a 14-year-old, with a 15-year-old, with anybody under the age of 18. They'd be very specific about it, and they would just put it straight out there, instead of saying, these allegations are false. 
Got because it. that leaves a lot more. Mm-hmm. Well, Hannity got a little bit better, but not by much. So he had a lengthy question related to Leah Korfman, who was the 14-year-old. He basically mm-hmm. reiterated her statement to the Washington Post about how Judge Moore, back when he was a DA, met her outside a courtroom, got her phone number and so on, talked about going back to uh, his house and all that sort of thing. After giving those details, Hannity asks, is that your position? None of that ever happened. And Moore says, quote, it never happened, and I don't even like hearing it because it never happened, and they're doing this a month away, four weeks away, after 40 years in public service. Okay. Yeah, again, uh, I would actually say it's a terrible question because it's a leading question because he says, is that your position that none of that ever happened? It's like saying to somebody, isn't it true you, you didn't kill your wife, did you? What's he going to do? Say, oh, no, hold on a second. You know, time out. No, no, actually, it's my position that it did happen. Now, he's not going to do that. He's going to follow through. He's been he's been pitched a, a, an incredible softball here. Now, what we also have as a deceptive indicator is where a denial, somebody can actually deny, but it's a minimal part of the overall message. So they've managed to work themselves up to give a denial or what sounds like a denial, but it's a small part. So we break it down like this. It never happened. Okay. So there you go. It never happened after uh, Hannity has detailed all of this and then said, is that your position? Well, again, he's really led him into being able to say, yes, it's my position and yes, it never happened. Uh, So again, it's, it's not the sort of question that somebody should ask. Um, And then he goes on to say, I don't even like hearing it because it never happened. Well, because it never happened, I don't like hearing it. How about I feel sorry for this? You know, if if it never happened, I feel sorry for this young lady that she's making this stuff up. If he truly believes that or this is hurting my family. Instead, it's I don't like hearing it. And they're doing this, and here we get into it. They're doing this a month away, four weeks away, after 40 years in public service. So we've got a big convincing statement there, okay? It never happened, okay? So he's been led into that answer, directly into that answer uh, by Sean Hannity because he said, is that your position? None of it ever happened. And he just agrees with Sean Hannity. It never happened. He just parrots what Sean Hannity said. And then he's about to talk about the election. But I think he realizes that that's probably the wrong thing to do uh, because people might look and say, "Eh, uh, he's making excuses because of the election. So he stops on that. He says, doing this a month away, four weeks away, break. After 40 years in public service, big convincing statement there. So then again, uh, we're not, you know, I've I've got to stress this. I'm not saying to you that the man is lying, that the man is being completely untruthful. I'm saying that he needs a decent interview. There's more work to do here. There's something going on that we've got to get to the bottom of. And if he's asked questions in a correct manner by somebody who knows what they're doing, then they can either implicate him or exonerate him, and this can be completely over. But you ask rubbishy questions, leading questions, that lead him straight to the answer or give anybody an answer, then they're going to take that opportunity and run with it. Well, let me ask a follow-up 
what mm-hmm. type of question would you ask in that scenario? What would be a question to get a decent answer? Uh, we have what we, we we have two different types of questions that we use sparingly, uh, but a good question would be, Judge Moore, what happened with Lee Kaufman, or what happened when you took Lee Kaufman back to your house in the woods? Now, in that situation, that's what's called a presumptive question. Now, a deceptive person is going to have to make two decisions. They're going to have to decide that they're going to be deceptive, and then they're going to have to keep the story straight. And they're going to be thinking, hold on a second, this person may know something. The honest person can just turn right around and say, I've never taken her there. End off. So you're not leading them down a trail to falsely implicate themselves. But if he thinks there's other information out there that you have got as a questioner, He's then going to have to think about that and think about that a lot. Or you could ask him a question that's called a bait question, uh, where you'd say, uh, you know, Judge Moore, uh, you know that a lot of people have researched this. A lot of people have been interviewed, film from that time, footage from that time, pictures from that time have been looked at forensically. Judge Moore, is there any reason that any of that would show that you took Lee Kaufman back to your house in the woods? That's called a bait question. It's different than a bluff. Because again, if he's honest and it didn't happen, he could say, no, there's absolutely no reason at all. But the dishonest person is going to be thinking to themselves, what the heck does this person know? What is there out there? What's going on? Is there something out there that I don't know about? And if they are being, if they are a dishonest person, and they want to try to save themselves in some way, they might say something along the lines of, well, you know, I took so-and-so out to my place because I was talking to them about uh, doing some domestic work around there, cleaning the place up for me. So those are two types of questions that we would use. You, you would never ask somebody, is, is that your position that none of that ever happened? Because, of course, they're going to say, no, none of it ever happened. You've just led them. You've given them the answer, and he just parrots the answer straight back out. Was, you know, like I say, terrible questions, garbage in, garbage out. So, you ask that question, you're going to get bad information. Yeah. Well, to prove that I am bipartisan, I am also now unaffiliated a pox on both their houses. I do have snippets mm-hmm. from Representative John Conyers as well. And okay. this will be the last two examples I've got. So he released a statement relating to accusations that he had sexually harassed employees. And his statement starts with, quote, I have long been and continue to be a fierce advocate for equality in the workplace. And I fully support the rights of employees who believe they have been harassed or discriminated against to assert claims against their employers. That seems like nothing but convincing statements. Is that right? Nothing but convincing statements there. I mean, this this is somebody who is trying to draw a halo around their head uh, as big as that around the head of St. Michael the Archangel. Um, you know, he all he does here, all he does is talk about being a fierce advocate for equality, uh, the rights of employees, how he wants to fight for people who've been harassed and discriminated against. Um, you know, it's, it's one big convincing statement. There are a lot of them, huge cluster there, huge cluster. Got it. He also says later in the statement, quote, in this case, I expressly and vehemently denied the allegations made against me and continue to do so. Just going back to the allegations again. 
Same again. Yes. I mean, he's saying in this case, in this case. So my question would be, uh, that's what we would call an exclusionary qualifier. What about other cases? Have there been other cases? Have there been other times? And then he says, I expressly and vehemently denied past tense the allegations made against me. Well, I'd love to take a look if there have been, for example, settlements. I would like to see if in those settlements, you know, if somebody says something like this. And again, you know, as I said with with Judge Moore, I'm not saying that the person is lying. I'm not saying they're telling the truth. I'm saying there's more work to be done. In a case like this, you want to look at things and say, did somebody pay money out? Uh, you know, we, we had somebody who was on uh, TV as an interviewer who paid $32 million, allegedly, to somebody to settle a uh, sexual uh, harassment allegation and then tried to say that it was just nuisance money and <laughs> that it was, uh, you know, uh, that all allegations were denied in the settlement. Well, you and I both know, Greg, $32 million is hardly nuisance money. Um, and regardless of what somebody says in a settlement document with regards to denying it, uh, smoke, fire, we'll, we'll leave that alone. But here with, uh, with Representative Conyers, you know, he's saying, I expressly and vehemently denied the allegations made against me. So again, we get back to the allegations. He's not saying, I have never, I have never done this. I have never sexually harassed a woman. I have never engaged in sexual misconduct with a woman. He's saying, in this case, I expressly and vehemently denied. He may well have done. There are lots of people out there who have denied allegations made against them. There are people who plead not guilty and are found guilty. There are people who plead not guilty and then later plead guilty. So, again, more work to do. You'd like to be able to ask all of these people uh, lots more questions. Um, and again, what we seek to do, we don't seek to implicate people. We're not just looking to say that somebody is guilty. We'd like to ask questions in a way where we will either implicate or we will exonerate. Because if somebody did it, then they need to be outed and they need to, you know, if they've sexually assaulted, they've sexually harassed somebody, they need to be outed and they need to be uh, ostracized by the general public. If they did not do it, then their reputation needs to be given back to them. And anybody who would have made a false allegation, they need to uh, uh, suffer the ramifications of making such a false allegation. So we, we seek to implicate or to exonerate. Um, and a lot of that is done through the questioning and looking at that. But all of those, they let's just say that they get my antenna going and I would, I would have a lot of questions for, for each of those individuals. Do you think they'll ever let you in the halls of Congress to question people on that? No, I think the last time they let... Um, uh, British people in and around government buildings um, in uh, in DC was uh, during the eighteen twelve war, and we set fire to things. So, um, uh, and even though I've been a, a U.S. citizen for for, for twenty one 
uh, wonderful years. Um, you know, there's still a part of me that likes to watch The Patriot backwards, so it has a happy ending. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, no. I, I, I don't think that any of these people would really want to put themselves up and out there. But I think it, it speaks to, as well, the media and that I think the media needs to do a better job in their questioning and they need to do a really good job in their research because these are very serious, very serious allegations uh, that are made against people. Um, and so uh, effective questioning and effective analysis. And there may be people who are saying, look, he's just being too nitpicky. But my response to that is this, is that those who deceive are nitpicky too. They are nitpicky too. And I'll leave you with one very, very good example. And that was just to show that, that I am uh, completely uh, bipartisan in, in who I might offend. Uh, Bill Clinton was asked if he had ever smoked marijuana the first time that he ran for president. And he said, when I was in England, I tried marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and I didn't inhale. And everybody said, he is such a liar. And there were people who, when they ran later on uh, for president, said, I, you know, I used marijuana and I inhaled. That was the point. Uh, and I spoke to somebody who was at Oxford at the same time as Bill Clinton, didn't know him, but was there at the same time, and said the American students were very cautious because they were afraid if they got caught doing something bad, they could lose their scholarships, the Rhodes Scholars, be sent back home and potentially uh, be drafted or something else could happen to them. And so instead of smoking marijuana, they baked it into brownies. So now look mm. at that statement. When I was in England, I tried marijuana a time or two and I didn't like it. Well, the only thing there is, is why did he try to second time then i didn't like it and i didn't inhale and if he was eating the brownies then he wasn't inhaling so there you have very very nitpicky very very specific in the way in which those words are chosen each one in and of itself may well be a truthful statement but the overall impression that's left is a deceptive impression and so that's what folks do, and that's why we're nitpicky. But again, it is not human lie detector. It just says to me, I want to ask this person questions in a different way, and I'm sure as heck not going to put words into somebody's mouth so they can just parrot them back to me. Got it, got it. Well, Peter, thank you so much. How can our listeners find you if they want to connect with you on social media? I am on Facebook, uh, Peter Romery. I've got uh, a Twitter account, Qverity Legal, at Qverity Legal. I've got at Peter Romery. Um, I think I may have an Instagram account, but there's obviously not an awful lot on there if I'm telling you that I think that I've got one. Uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn, so I'm very easy to find. And then also the Qverity website. I would suggest you know, everybody go and take a look at that because we've got clips there. Uh, of where uh, our CEO, Phil Houston, has been on national TV. Uh, so it's Q-V-E-R-I-T-Y, Qverity.com, www.qverity.com, and they can find out all they need to know about us. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll hopefully have you back on sometime in the future. Thank you very much, Greg. Take care. Take care. So, y'all, that was Peter Romery of Qverity. The books, again, are Spy the Lie, 
and Get the Truth. I will give you links of those in the show notes if you want to go ahead and get them on your own. Uh, Qverity.com is their website, and he is on Twitter, at Peter Romery. Um, think very highly of him and Phil Houston and the team. I've got, like I said, I've got all their books. I've got their CLE stuff. I even got the books autographed. I went to one of their book signing parties. The stuff that they teach you is very, very effective, and it opens your eyes to the the stuff going on around you, especially with our politicians, man, because our politicians lie to us about so much. It's insane. So, folks, that's going to do it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, as always, please leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And please make sure to share the episode on Twitter. Tell your friends. Have them listen to us. We need more subscribers. We always need more. Uh, And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a blessed week, and we'll talk to you next Monday.